As a five-time Grammy and Oscar winner, Christopher Cross has definitely left his mark on popular music. Since his self-titled debut Warner Brothers release in 1979, his name elicits memories of when one may have heard sailing or ride like the wind. For those who have looked beyond Cross's early pop successes, they have found a body of work that launched eight albums of intelligent, melodic, sophisticated, and mature music. Although Christopher's entry into the public eye was meteoric, don't call him your typical overnight success. His albums Another Page and Walking in Avalon are arguably classics that remain relevant recordings to date. His recent Cafe Carlisle sessions reintroduced some of his well-known classics in a format and style that is truly all Christopher Cross. Inside Music Cast is pleased to welcome Christopher Cross. Hey, Christopher, thanks for joining us today. My pleasure, guys. Nice to talk to you. <laughs> hey, listen, I want to personally just thank you uh, because uh, uh, it's nice to have another native Texan up here in the. <laughs> you know, oh, you're from Texas. <laughs> oh, I I'm, I go back a long, long time. Lived in uh, South Texas for a while, and when I read that you were from San Antonio, born and raised, I'm like, this guy's got to be a good guy. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely. It's too hot down there for me anymore, but there's definitely great people. You know, I certainly have a lot of. Uh, Patriots and Don Henley, Don Henley's from up at Linden, and that's right. Yeah, that's right. And of course, Eric Johnson's still a good close friend. He's there, so there's a lot, a lot of, lot of really nice people down there. Yeah. So, so you were born and raised there in, in San Antonio? Well, no, I was born in San Antonio, but yeah. I, my father was an army physician, so oh, we okay. moved pretty, pretty early on to Tokyo for about four or five years, and then Washington D.C. Yeah. And then back to San Antonio, and then I left San Antonio around '69 or '70 to go to Austin for ten years, and then out to L.A. In yeah. 80. Well, you must have been some somewhat of a of a sponge, even musically in that area. I mean, if you, I don't know how deep you were in that time, but Texas has a different uh, vibe of music going on from country and everything. And what uh, back early early then, I mean, what little exposure you did have to music, what were you exposed to down there in Texas? How did that influence you down there? Well, I mean, early on, uh, early on, were all the Latin groups like Senio's in and the Sunliners and yeah. A lot of uh, Hispanic groups, and that's where I think I get a lot of the sort of sixteenth note rhythm things with my music, a little bit of Latin flavor. But there were a lot of great big Latin horn bands, yeah. um, like I said, Sonny and some others that were, you know, really, um, really famous and well known at that time. And yeah. so, you know, when we'd go out to hear big shows, that's a lot of what the local talent was. But of course, as I moved um, up, you know, migrated more to Austin. Yeah. Um, you know, certainly Billy Gibbons' first band, Moving Sidewalk, and. Uh, uh-huh. Jimmy and Stevie Vaughan. Stevie was sure. quite a bit younger, but Jimmy Vaughan, the Thunderbirds, uh, and Eric Johnson had a group called Mariani, which was uh, he was just playing guitar. They had a singer named Vince Mariani. So these were all the early beginnings of these bands. You know that I was kind of uh, they were sort of um, peers, and yeah. there was kinship there. And so you know there were influences in their own way, and that you know we we're kind of kind of grew up doing it together. You know, yeah. well, just 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 Austin itself has become such an eclectic type of oh, music, yeah. music capital. I mean, they relate that to New Orleans or Nashville. I mean, it's it's an amazing music town. Yeah, I mean, it's changed a lot. You know, Austin's big now. They got traffic and a lot of the major city problems. When I was there, it was about three hundred thousand people, and mm-hmm. it was a really really cool little music scene. It's gotten huge now. It's like another coast. But I enjoyed the time I spent there. It was ten years there. Like I said, there was a lot of music going on, but it was a little. A little more low key, and Sixth Street wasn't so um, much like Bourbon Street. And um, there's a lot of good stuff going. On. Like I said, I'm, um, you know, my my close peers um, were certainly Eric Johnson, like I said, Billy, and those people. Yeah. But it was Willie Nelson, George F. Walker. There's a lot of sure. lot of talent down there for sure. <laughs> Did you ever get a chance by chance to to play Austin City Limits down there or not? I didn't. You know, it's huh? funny they I was, that came up the other day because I, they didn't ever ask me in the beginning when. Thing first started out, I think I was maybe a little too pop for the show for the mm. format. Yeah. And then I got a bit insulted, and I, I don't recall this, but somebody reminded me the other day that they did ask me finally, and I turned them down, I guess. I was sort of out of, <laughs> out of uh, irritation that they didn't ask me. Um, the two shows that kind of evaded me were SNL and, and 
And uh, Austin City Limits, and I think people theorized that I kind of came out of nowhere and I was maybe just a little too pop for the format, you know? <laughs> yeah. They were kind of too hip for me. Yeah. <laughs> we have so many questions that will span your career, but I want to start off uh, right now by, t- by talking about your most recent project, that being the Cafe Carlisle Sessions. And, um, you know, I want to begin by mentioning that this place, the Cafe Carlisle, was, was made famous by the amazing Bobby Short, who performed there for years. Right. Yeah, well, Bobby, you know, made the room famous, obviously. It's pretty mm-hmm. 80 people. It's a legendary yeah. cafe. The Carlisle Hotel is historic itself. You know, Jack Kennedy was there, and, and a lot of people, you know, a lot of celebrities go through there. Um, I, when Bobby passed away, they, they wanted to kind of bring somebody a little more contemporary into the room, um, which is strange. I'm going to be 58 in a few days. It's like I'm not contemporary, but by Eartha <laughs> Kid and Elaine Stritch and Bobby's standards I am. So right, right. they asked me to play the room for a month, and I had to scale down my show quite a bit because I couldn't bring the whole pop ensemble. Hmm. And I was really hesitant to do it because of that and also just the cabaret nature of the show, having to talk a lot and all that. And my girlfriend, Virginia, actually was the one who sort of coerced me into doing it because she thought <laughs> it would be good for me to sort of get out of my comfort zone. And also, she just wanted to have a suite at the Carlisle for a month in New York. <laughs> but she, um, you know, she suggested doing it with sax because of the Arthur theme and you know, yeah. just doing it more... I was going to do two acoustic guitars. She said, no, I'll get a sax and do piano. And she's the one, really. In fact, if you look in the album, there's a dedication to her because it was really mm-hmm. kind of her uh, idea. But we, uh, I did it. I was uncomfortable for about a week or so, but once my ear adjusted to the... Um, I got two wonderful New York musicians, Andy Ezra on piano and David Mann on sax. Uh, David has played with Tower Power. Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, and he and his brother had a group called the Mann Brothers for a while. But mm-hmm. um, they're brilliant players. And uh, we, you know, started doing the songs that way. And I just, initially I was uncomfortable, but once I got you know, my ear adjusted, I liked it a lot. And people responded really well to to the presentation that way. They thought I could hear my voice better and that it was more of a songwriter kind of show. So uh, <clears throat> see my good friend Chris Walden, who's a brilliant kind of jazz arranger, producer, person, works with uh, Dinah Krall and lots of people. I met him through Jeremy Lubbock years ago. He hmm. has a connection with Edel Records in Germany and has been wanting to do some type of jazz kind of flavored record with me and we talked about it and uh, decided to go in the studio, and so we went in for just two days. We added uh, Kevin Axt on bass and Dave Byer on drums and did this sort of, you know, it's a jazz-flavored, I mean, I, I hate to call it jazz. I mean, music, yeah. jazz musicians, they play. They come from a jazz place, but it's not really jazz. We right, rearrange right. the songs harmonically, but stretch them out a little bit, and we recorded, you know, live like a Sinatra record where everybody plays at once, and uh, mm-hmm. came out real well, and, and Adele's marketed it uh, pretty successfully. In Europe, it's had really more attention from the press than any of my recent records, so yeah, uh, it, yeah. it's, it's, it's been fun to do, and it's been a real rebirth for me in terms of playing live, because I was getting, frankly, a little stale on just recreating the 80s records note for note, whether right. I was using musicians or tracks, right. and, and uh, dragging my electric guitar equipment around, it got to be a real hassle trying to, the equipment I wanted to use for my guitar was, just wasn't practical to lug with the airline restrictions and stuff, and it just got to be very frustrating, so uh, this is a real, a real nice... Uh, you know, change for me. I'm enjoying it. I, th- I think it's refreshing when you hear an artist take take something that people are familiar with and, and, and put a twist on it. And I think what you've done with Cafe Carlisle Sessions was really refreshing. Yeah, and it, I don't I don't even interpret them as as really covers. You know, no. it's not somebody else doing your song. It's right. you sort of reinventing, reinterpreting the whole thing. And I, th- I thought it was, it was a really neat sound. Well, thanks. I mean, I think you know what it does is it really lets the song speak for themselves. And yeah. I've been, you know, people have been nice and very complimentary that they think the songs hold up that way. I think that oh, yeah. you know, Mike McDonald told me a long time ago. He said, you know, if you can't play it on an acoustic guitar or piano, it's not a song. Which you know, <laughs> is one way of kind of putting 
certainly the, the era we came yeah. from. But um, I think because now it's you know, everything so production based. But right. um, I, I do think that you know I enjoy hearing the songs. They're more like I wrote them. Uh, you know, there is you know the background vocals is just my voice featured, and I think. Um, you know, the songs really come through in more pure form. So I think uh, it's kind of you to say, but I, I'm enjoying it, and people seem to respond to it. Like I said, I think it's uh, sure. it's something, and it's about time. And for me, like I said, I was doing the same thing for a long time, so this is coming at a, right. at a good time. We just did some shows with America, and Jerry Beckley was saying he was pretty blown away because he felt you're kind of reinventing myself in a way with the live show. And, and um, so, yeah, it's, it's working well, and right. I don't see myself going back, frankly. I think it's... Mm-hmm. I, I enjoy the, the, getting to play with these musicians. I've got a group of them now that I work with, and they're all just yeah. you know, brilliant. And uh, and we stretch out some of the songs and let them solo and, and bring their virtuosity to yeah. their gifts to the stage. And every night it's it's exciting for me because it's just um, it's different every night. They're just right. all such amazing players, you know. Yeah. Well, obviously, I didn't have the luxury of staying at the Carlisle for one month, but I do have a question. I'm really curious about the room. I mean, you know, what were the acoustics like? I mean, the, you had the guys playing with you, and and uh, as you were setting up, I mean, how, how long? Were we, how many shows did you do there? Well, I did um, like six a week. I think I did, you know, five and then two on the weekends. Okay. I didn't play on Mondays. Woody Allen plays on Mondays there. Woody does his oh, okay. uh, <laughs> yeah. and then thing. But I played two shows on the weekends, and all the other nights, one show. An hour set. Um, you know, acoustic, they have a little PA in there. It's a very, very, very small room. It's only 80 people. It's a right. very high, upscale dinner theater place. You know, mm-hmm. people wear coats and ties, and it's very expensive. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, you know, I think the PA was adequate. We used a grand piano, and David played sax, and I played acoustic guitar. If I, Carlisle's been talking about having me come back in, and if I did go back in, I'd probably want to bring the brush kit and at upright bass as well, but it, it, there's mm-hmm. a physical limitation to how many bodies you can fit up there. But it's nice. The acoustics are okay. I mean, there's pockets of the room that, that don't get the sound. But I, I think, uh, you know, it's really more about the intimacy. But I, I think yeah. it sounded all right. And um, yeah. it's just a vibe. I said it's just people are, you know, right in your lap. And sure. uh, mm-hmm. I, I did I did like the kind of honest honesty of it and the sort of, you know, um, very real. It's just oh, yeah. right I, there. And so, um, you know, people, like I said, people seem to really dig it. So I, yeah. I um, now, of course, we're doing rooms that are bigger. But sure. I was... Getting the drums and bass, you know, is nice, but uh, yeah. I'm, I'm enjoying not having, um, now that I'm adjusted to it, like I said, you know, not having to try to recreate the records, you know. Right. Does it put more pressure or less pressure on you knowing that somebody is like three feet from your knees looking up at you and, you know, uh, when a, yeah, even even if you have a small room, but they're so much closer than your typical type of larger venue, how, how, do, how does that make you react when you're performing? Well, you know, it's uh, I, I enjoy the intimate rooms. I enjoy when you can really see the people's faces and you're closer to them. I mean, I guess I suppose uh, the big, big rooms I don't like as well because I don't feel like the acoustics can ever be great. And so I don't feel like the music's coming over as well as it can in places, real big places, like when I used to open for the Eagles and stuff, yeah, playing, right. you know, 20,000, 30,000 seaters. Sure. I, I like it. I mean, I'm very comfortable performing. I've been doing it a long time, and so I'm not one that gets nervous. And and uh, it's fine. I mean, I, same with Japan. They're kind of right right there and um it's good you know like i said it's real human connection they're the people that make you who you are and i think it's usually the people that are up front are up front because they want to be and they're really hanging on every word and so it's uh it's rewarding was there any video that was ever even shot of this thing uh well i mean you know something on youtube probably but we actually just shot um we just played in japan and at the billboard live and we did fuji tv launched their hd channel and we they broadcast the first set live in hd from the the club, and we got the footage, and I have it, and we're in the process now of, uh, you know, editing it down and kind of cleaning it up a little bit, Um, and we're going to be putting that up. I don't think we're going to release a DVD, because they typically don't really sell very much, but we'll definitely be putting up pieces on my website and 
you know, amazing you for bonus tracks and stuff. We'll be making it available to people. But it turned out real nice. It's, yeah. uh, it's you know, it's a 70-minute set of the Carlisle stuff, and it's Absolutely. nice. That's very cool. You, you've mentioned uh, David Mann a minute ago, and, of course, he plays saxes and flute. But tell us about some of the other uh, members in your band. You had, uh, oh, first of all, if, if I, I'm going to throw out a name here and tell me about their contributions to your band and to the Carlisle Sessions themselves. And one is uh, your, your pianist and, and Rhodes player, Andy Ezrin. You know, Andy's brilliant. I met him through Chris Valden, the producer that I mentioned, and uh, uh-huh. Andy's a New York player. He's plays with a little, he plays with a lot of different people. Um, uh, he's just, uh, you know, just a brilliant jazz pianist. The great thing about Andy, what I've been looking for, I've just gotten another guy I'm working with named Nick Manson out of Phoenix. The key to this stuff is you got to find a guy who has jazz chops, who, who has mm-hmm. that kind of sensibility, but can also play pop and play for the song, because sure. a lot of jazz guys don't really know how to interpret the pop thing, and, and yeah. the, the record is still very much the song, so... Andy's brilliant at that, as is Nick, and I've auditioned a few guys who, you know, play brilliantly, but they don't know how to play pop, and mm-hmm. so it's a tough thing to try to find somebody who, you know, has those skills and brings, like, in front of Sailing every night, Andy or Nick play a little kind of Keith Jarrett-ish type of piece where it's mm-hmm. about a minute and a half of them just improvising before yeah. Sailing, and then they transition to the start of Sailing. That's cool. And it's just, you know, there's a little bit of on the Carlisle record, but we've expanded that now, and yeah. every night it's just, it's inspiring to hear these guys. Sure bring that to the table and um but again it's about bringing that gift and keeping it in the in 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 the realm of the pop thing but uh that's what the key and so i'm slowly Mm -hmm. gathering up these guys who are you know awesome kind of you know gunslingers but they they can tone it down and and corral it into something that's you know a song form you know yeah i uh i I noticed that uh, in the beginning of one of the i think i think it was sailing like you said uh, the little piano interlude i thought it was going to go on a little more and then all of a sudden he he went a little higher and ended up with that very high note then you guys come in with the song with the guitar and uh so you expand that more on the yeah i mean live we let him go as long as he wants and sometimes i've seen andy or nick go for minute and a half or two minutes or something it's just it's something they make up every yeah. time and it's brilliant you know it's it's sort of like having a you know a really powerful car and just not pushing the gas on all the way right. i guess <laughs> these guys the same with the toto guys i mean luke and jeff and all those guys they're all like these you know real serious accomplished players and and they you know they have a love of pop music and so they you know took that kind of um you know superhuman sort of talent that they have and they you know formed a band and wrote songs and stuff i guess it's funny a lot of guys like them you know, at the heart of it, even though they can, you know, somebody like Luke just, you know, plays ass off, but sure. what he really wants to do is be a singer-songwriter, you know? Right. Same right. with Eric Johnson. I mean, Eric, you know, he he, he enjoys, you know, he, a lot of people come to see him play fast, but I mean, what Eric really loves to do more than anything is write songs and, and be a songwriter, you know? Mm-hmm. And then we also had uh, Kevin Axt on bass. Yeah, Kevin's another one. Most of these musicians I met through Chris Valden, they're all like jazz cats that work with him in his big band. Yeah. Kevin's great. A great player. I haven't been able to get him on the road. He's booked up, but a uh, really nice guy and did a great job, and, uh, you know, the first time I brought kind of upright bass into the to music like this, yeah. I mean, with my Christmas album I released last year, I did use upright bass, but uh, this first time I played, you know, the, the catalog with upright, and it's real nice, it's, uh, it's a different kind of sound, and, you know, mm-hmm. like I said, it's just, uh, it's a real neat ensemble, and the guys, uh, and I'm, I've gotten guys from, I've got guys in Germany, I've got guys sort of all over the world, I'm trying to expand the bench Right. Make it a little deeper so that when I go different parts of the world, I can have different guys, and, and there sure. are a lot of wonderful musicians out there. Sure, yeah. sure, sure. Well, you mentioned the, the Christmas album real quick. Was the Christmas album the last um, time that you um, got to work with Michael Marty? And has it been a long time before that you had worked with him or not? Yeah, I mean, Michael produced the first four records and sure. played on them, and so right. the last one was in 88. I mean, we remain very close friends, and yeah. I see him, but 
I hadn't worked with him, and, and what happened... Well, we actually did some re-records on two or three things for the Greatest Hits album where Michael played, you know, like real piano instead of, you know, synth piano, and I yeah. did that with him. But uh, for the Christmas record, I produced it myself, and I wanted it to be simple, and so I just used uh, Michael and myself on acoustic, and we used um, Dan O'Langerty, mm-hmm. uh, uh, North Texas-trained bass player that's in Nashville that Michael knew. But it was a really wonderful reunion uh, to, to work with Michael, and we, you know, we did it over two different periods of sessions, and... It was just great. He's just, you know, he's he's uh, kind of David Foster without the ego, <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and uh, he's just brilliant and just a you know, beautiful player. And he and I have a, obviously a very deep connection with the music, and so it's always fun, a great hang. And the, the Christmas album, it really hasn't actually been formally released in the states ever. I mean, it, it did come out sort of at the last minute in Europe this year. We're going to do a new cover and and try to really get it out there um, as best we can, because it's probably, I think, the album I'm most proud of, because I've you know, produced it myself, and I'm really happy with the way it came out, but yeah. uh, features, you know, real strings, uh, 30 pieces that were arranged by Chris Walden and Amartian playing, and sure. a nice record. Yeah, well, speaking of Amartian, uh, we almost had a surprise for you tonight. We actually had got in contact with, with Michael. Uh, he's been a guest on our show once, and we were going to have him come in, and we were going to chat about uh, his work with you, but he wasn't able to do it with yeah. us tonight. So. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. We, you know, we, I wasn't, uh, some years ago, we, we sat in his house and put on, I think, another page of the second record and just sort of listened to it and mm-hmm. reminisced. But that's one of the great things about um, a buddy of mine, Dave Clark, that I've gotten good friends with. He's a player in L.A., and... He's involved in Christian music, and so he obviously he's a Martian fan, and he came to Nashville with me for one of the sessions we did, um, and you know just hung out, spent time with us, and was mm-hmm. thrilled to be around Omar. But he was just loving, just sort of being a fly on the wall, listening to just all the reminiscence, because you know sure. we go back a long way, and share a lot of common friends who are to a lot of musicians, you know, they're gods, guys like Carlton and people like that. Sure, right. So it's fun when Omar and I get together. It's you know he's one of those. It's one of those friendships that. Um, you know, we it's timeless. I mean, it doesn't seem like there's been any time in between visits when even when it's been years. And of course, you know, Michael really helped me put myself on the map, and I did him as well. I mean, we you know, collaboratively we, we did you know did some good work and got some recognition. Yeah. Hey, we skipped around here for a minute, and let's go back to the Carlisle sessions real quick. I wanted to just mention Dave Byer's name so he doesn't feel left out. And he, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Dave's, Dave's a brilliant player. You know, he's the one guy who kind of came over from the pop band. Although live, Jonathan Clark is playing with me quite a bit now. But Dave's a uh, Brilliant player, you know. He's a, he taught at MI, teaches at Lama, Joe Picaro's school in LA. He's just oh, a yeah. very accomplished, uh, very accomplished player. Can do anything well, and a dear friend. And so, um, you know, there wasn't a question when I went to do the record when we were talking about players, you know, who could make the leap. You know, Dave was one of the ones in the pop band. There was no question because he's of that caliber of player. So, yeah. it's great, and uh, you know, it's uh, it did cause me to have to bring in a new group of people because uh, some of the people I've been playing with that were great, great musicians were more kind of pop sidemen, and this is a different kind of thing. Mm-hmm. One of the nice things about the Carlisle show is that uh, because everything's done with charts, we're really expanding the book. I've got about 40 songs now that I can call out and do, and the guys, because they have the book, they can just pick the chart up and sure. we'll just do it, whereas before there was a lot more preparation that limited, you know, what songs I could play. So that's right. been nice. Um, to, to play more of the tunes from records, you know. Very cool. Well, that was nice. It was very nice to see the the extensive list. I mean, fifteen tracks on an album—that's a lot of music, yeah. you know. And uh, I, I've, me and Rick have sort of been devouring that over the past few days. And uh, I tell you, it's it's a nice body of work, and I'm I, I'm anticipating uh, maybe some th- this thing might have a a nice strong life a- ahead of it, you know, with the the right uh, promotion, you know. Well, maybe some people say we should do version two. I mean, obviously the version two wouldn't have the hits on it, but right. we're doing some songs now in the show, a lot of songs that aren't on the record, like Red Room and Dream Too Loud and things from 
from Avalon and and um, and different kind of approach and people really responding to them as well. So I don't know. We may end up doing and like with this DVD, this footage we shot in um, Japan. There's some of those songs are featured. So we're playing more things. We don't play everything from the record live all the time, but we are adding things all the time. So yeah. it's uh, but it's nice songs like Back of My Mind and things that you know Rob and I are very mm-hmm. proud of. Uh, as writers, you know, it's nice that these songs are getting a new life because in a lot of cases, you know, people didn't hear those songs. So. Right, exactly. Right. I'm always curious about how connections are made in the music industry. So tell me a little bit about Arthur's theme. Now, how did your connection to write this song come about? Well, um, the people at Orion Pictures who did the movie, they had contacted me about scoring the movie. And uh-huh. I thought, you know, well, this sounds fun. I mean, I've never done it. but So they gave me the job of scoring the movie. But Stephen Gordon, who was the writer-director of Arthur, who's brilliant, um, just kind of got cold feet to the fact that I'd never scored a movie, and I think he was new as a director, and I don't think he just, just you know, didn't really trust my abilities, which is understandable, because I'd never done it. Uh, so they pulled it from me and gave it to Burt Backrack, and of course I wasn't really offended, because Burt's brilliant, but also I had never done it before. But mm-hmm. I had been working on, you know, the title, and so Burt, who was married to Carol, Carol Barsegger at the time, Bert, they called me up and said, listen, you know, Burt's going to score, but would you like to work on the title together? And so um, I just actually went up to Burton Carroll's house, you know, midnight one night, and, and at 5 in the morning we had the song, and we actually collaborated with Peter over the phone. Hmm, he was in Australia, fun. but uh, I had never met them before. It was really just a matter of, uh, of them reaching out to me. I mean, there's no surprise here. I mean, um, I had won the Grammys, and I was definitely, you know, the new kid in town, as the Eagles like to yeah. say. <laughs> and uh, so, you know, you know, stupid, I was, you know, I was... I was in the middle of my 15 minutes of fame, so they—they they, it, it was a good choice to have me, you know, work on the song and sing the song. But it was wonderful. I mean, obviously, uh, Carol and Peter are both very, very accomplished writers. But Bert, you know, is, is Bert. I mean, he's the greatest, you know, harmonic kind of pop songwriter of my generation. So it was yeah. a thrill, obviously, to work with him. And he's—he's um, he's every bit that and more. I mean, he's—you uh, know—it was very intimidating to go up there, but he's a very lovely guy and 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 makes you feel very comfortable, you know, working with him because he doesn't, you know, kind of cop an attitude that I'm her back rack and you know right, right. Uh, you're not um, but <laughs> he's uh, although he did have his two Oscars sitting there on the mantle <laughs> but uh, he's a great guy and he's, he's just brilliant like I said harmonically and, and the song is clearly Arthur is a song that's you know more typical of Bird style than mine so mm-hmm. um, yeah, but yeah. yeah it was a wonderful collaboration and of course uh, they were excited about the song when we finished it and felt that you know it could be an Oscar contender which I was still kind of just reeling from the Grammys so I thought the whole thing sounded mm-hmm. absurd um <laughs> Because it wasn't a world I was used to. There weren't really that many pop songs winning Oscars at that point. And um, yeah. I think the song helped the movie and vice versa. And, of course, now it's more typical, um, you know, pop songs and movies. But uh, the whole thing was, you know, it was great. I don't really collaborate, per se. I haven't in my career. And we wrote one other thing. Burton and uh, Carol and I wrote a song called Chance for Heaven for the Olympics right. album. Yeah. But, uh, you know, it was a, kind of a once-in-a-lifetime, sort of once-in-a-moment thing. I mean, I see them... Occasionally we're friendly, but, you know, I don't really, as I said, typically collaborate with anybody anyway. So it was just sort of one of those, mm-hmm. you know, side roads you took and it worked out well. Sure. Well, now you have a, an Oscar on your mantle, right? I do, I do. <laughs> That's really thrill. I, as I said, Bert and Carol sort of ushered me into, and Ed did, as did Dudley, uh-huh. uh, it was a different, it ushered me into sort of the movie star world, and I was never comfortable there, but it was exciting. I mean, going to, uh, you know, Dudley... Carol had me over to for parties at her house, and, you know, Carol Burnett and all these people would be there. Then yeah. Dudley took me to Liza's a few times, and, you know, Lauren Bacall. They hang out with these people. I mean, you know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so it was exciting. It was fun to um, to sort of, you know, 
just sort of hang around the periphery of all that. But it's not my world, but it was still fun, you know. <laughs> now, speaking of Dudley Moore, I, I found that uh, great clip on your website, ChristopherCross.com, of you performing with Dudley Moore on the Dudley Moore Show. Yeah, I'm slowly putting archival stuff up. I haven't done yeah. a lot. It's a good reminder. I need to stick some more stuff up there. Yeah. Um, yeah, Dudley did a special in London, asked me to come over. He and I did quite a bit of performing where we would perform the song together, him playing piano, me singing. Yeah. But he asked me to come over and be on a special, and, uh, you know, I was honored and thrilled to do it. But he was uh, just a lovely, lovely man, you know, just a very fine, obviously, comedic actor and, and comedic force. He and Peter had a, a cook, had a you know wonderful career that really was the beginnings of Monty Python and all that stuff in yeah. England. But a uh, very accomplished pianist, a very amazing musician. People yeah. know that, but... Um, he loved music, obviously, and he, um, so we had fun. You know, we did some NPR benefits and stuff, and he was very lovely to me. As I said, he, he took uh, my girlfriend at the time, Paige uh, McNinch, who was sort of of another Paige fame, and Laura Carter, who was her best friend, who's Laura from the song Who Was Killed. <laughs> they were, I was seeing Paige at the time, and so Laura and Paige were with me a lot, and, and Dudley took us to these inner sanctums of the Hollywood scene, and uh-huh. the girls were obviously thrilled, and, and it was very exciting, and Dudley always made us feel comfortable there and welcome, and he was sort of like, um, you know, our sort of big brother in it, because he was Dudley Moore, and he was yeah. always, you know, people always thrilled to see him. He brought us into a lot of these, you know, wor- little cubbyholes of that world that we would sure. never be brought into without him, you know? Yeah. We're not following any specific chronological order here, but I'm going to skip ahead to your 1992 Rendezvous album, and you had a song in there called Deputy Dan, and that's uh, autobiographical, correct? Yeah, it is autobiographical. Um, you know, I wrote it with Rob Muir, who I write, you know, ever since, ever starting with Back of My Mind, Rob and I started to collaborate. Um, you know, he's one of my oldest friend. We worked together from the early days in Texas. But, uh, yeah, it's autobiographical. I think, you know, it, it's, uh, the song is kind of juxtaposed as sort of our, when we were kids, dreaming about making it big and what we thought that would be like. Mm-hmm. And, you know, groups like Steely Dan that were kind of our mentors, you know, uh-huh. people we looked up to and, and we're fascinated by, and then, you know, the, the the real success that came and sort of the plain truth of it and sort of the, not the letdown, but sort of the realities of, of you know, lawyers, guns, and money and that kind of thing and, mm-hmm. and how it takes a toll on friendships and other things. And so there's a lot of little, Rob and I have always put a lot of little nuances in our songs, as does Steely, that you know, they're lost on, on a lot of the public, understandably so, because they're so <laughs> right. cryptic you wouldn't know. And, <laughs> right. uh, Eddie Christopher, why don't we uh, take a quick break, and since we're on the subject of the song, Deputy Dan, let's pause for a quick moment and listen to a sample of this newly arranged version. This is from the album The Cafe Carlisle Sessions from our guest Christopher Cross. This is Deputy Dan. Just another pure heart wide open mind Drifting like a cork on a sea of dreams Playing the schoolboy Making believe Dying to fill the shoes The really big shoes For the TV screams Something deep inside 
upstart entourage in the garage. Four crazy juveniles burning up the midnight miles. The gigs, the jukebox, guinea pigs spending our prime. Hey man, honky tonk women just one more time. sample of the autobiographical song called Deputy Dan from today's guest here on Inside Music Cast, Christopher Cross. And, uh, you know, let, let's talk about some of the lyrics in this song and, and how it has sort of a Steely Dan influence. You know, the song obviously is called Deputy Dan because harmonically I wrote it, you know, very much in the style of Donald and Walter. So sure. the chorus especially is very much like them. So it's sort of a tip of the hat to them musically. And then, you know, we talk about uh, trying to fill the shoes, the really big shoes, for the TV screams, you know, and those little things, you know, because they have the uh, on pretzel logic. They get, you know, you must, you know, you must be joking, son. Where did you get those shoes? Right, right. And then, you know, the TV screams for the Beatles, and so there's all these little um, little things. And then later on in the song, it says, "Took a ride on the wild wind, lost myself some old friends. Don't ask me if I'll do it again." Right. Well, you know, I I did lose some friendships with the older band members, which uh, thankfully a lot of them have been recovered by, you know, being swept up with, you know, the Toto guys and all that stuff, and yeah. that's for the reference to that, and then, you know, ride, got you know, on the wild wind, which is the ride like the wind, and then, you know, don't ask right. me if I'll do it again, which is obviously right. Steely single, so sure. there's all this cryptic <laughs> crap that, you know, Rob and I get kicked out of that people don't even know about. Well, you, you answered the questions before I had a chance to ask them, because, yeah, no because I'm Yeah, looking. and, you know, the same with Donald Walter, I mean, if you get a chance to ask them about... I'm a royal scam, you know, I asked Donald one time about, you know, what it's about the immigration of Puerto Ricans into New York, and, you know, you have to kind of know, <laughs> either you're really smart, like Orvin Dahl, and I guess you can figure it out, or you have to right. kind of have access either to an interview or to Donald and Walter and ask them, because there's a lot of cryptic stuff yeah. in, and references, as there is with Joni and people like that, that you, you know, unless you read a lot or got a big brain, you, you miss. <laughs> we, we would love to interview those guys. I, you know, it, it, Eddie and I have talked about that. It, they're kind of difficult to reach, but and maybe one of these days we'll we'll, we'll get yeah. lucky. My yeah, <laughs> I wouldn't. I'd be careful what you wish for. You know, that, well, that's true. They're very, they're very obviously brilliant, brilliant guys, and yeah. they. I I don't think Donald and Walter either one have a whole lot of patience for most interviews. So you no. have to be very on your yeah. toes because. <laughs> they they you have to keep their interest or else they get very you know cynical and sarcastic exactly. in a hurry. But I, I most people kind of leave the room crying. Uh, <laughs> they, they don't have a, I don't blame them. You know they don't have a lot of patience for that kind of thing because I don't think they find people asking very interesting questions. Right. Not that you wouldn't, but I think I know I saw on Shine. You know when Cavett is interviewing Jagger and says, you know, do you get a lot of stupid questions? And he said, yeah, like all the ones you're asking me. <laughs> and I think when you're as for people like you know Donald Walter, Randy Newman. Right, I think yeah. that it's hard. I think, you know, those, they're very smart guys, and they're very well-read, <laughs> as is Henley. Yeah. And, uh, you know, if you 
kind of on their level, then they're probably interested. But otherwise, they're probably not. You know? <laughs> right. I doubt if anybody's asking, uh, hey, Donald, could you tell us what uh, Johnny's uh, playroom is, a bunker filled with sand, he's become a thir- third world man. What does that mean? You know? Right. Well, that one's very <laughs> obvious. You know? Uh, you know, that's basically about Ted Nugent. But, um, uh, you know, it's not about Ted, but I mean, it's just about, you know, kind of militia man. But right, I mean, right. uh, you know, uh, there are a lot of... Uh, I saw a real cute thing that they did with the audience where they gave away some prize. If you could, they would recite a lyric, and if you could recite the next lyric, you could win something. And it was—it's a hard thing to do, you know. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. They—they—they, they, they, you know, they play with everybody. They—they'll—they'll they'll screw with your head, you know. Yeah. Eddie and I have <laughs> taken a, a a pretty cool route, though. We've interviewed a lot of people that have been associated with them, and we found out some really interesting information. Yeah. And, and we've really enjoyed that, you know, hearing from the experiences that some of the players that they've chosen over the years of, you know, like like you know Jay Graydon, for example. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, I don't really I don't really know Donald Walter at all. I'm just saying, but I just you know from. Yeah. Stuff I see, and I mean, I've met them, but I mean, uh, it's been a little time with them in the studio. But like someone like Omar, certainly a Marty, and you know, sure. very, very well because you know, and Larry and Jay, because they spent oh, yeah. you know, Marty played all that piano on, the, on all those records. So I, I mm-hmm. recommend. I love, I love those stories too. Believe me. You know? <laughs> well, I recommend you you listen to Omardian's interview because we crack up like crazy when uh, when he talks about a session with him and uh, Greg Fillingains. And on one, you have to just listen to the interview. It, <laughs> it, it, where it, they had one hand behind their back. Right, right. right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You've heard them all too, right? Well, yeah, I've heard them. Yeah. Well, the one about Jeffrey when Michael McDonald brought Jeffrey to the session in Bearsville and they'd gone through a bunch of drummers and Mike picked up Jeff at the airport because he'd recommended him and Jeff you know was nervous he was 17 or something sure. he lied, I guess and Jeff was nervous and heard they'd been tough on drummers and they were recording in some kind of barn I guess and when Jeff walked in, there was a drum kit set up, and there was just happened to be a noose hanging down over the drum set, which <laughs> had nothing to do with anything, but it happened to just be hanging there. And Jeff walked in, and when he met Donald Walter, he said, boy, you guys take this shit really seriously. <laughs> so, you know, there's all kinds of, Mike told me that one, but there's all uh, kinds of great stories. Welcome to this session, right? <laughs> actually, I think, actually, you know what, that story comes from Gary Katz read a letter at Jeff's funeral yeah. um, from, from the boys, from the guys, and that was the story that they told him. That's great. That's amazing. That's classic stuff. Hey, Christopher, you're a keyboardist, but and you're a guitarist, but when you're writing, you know, tell us a little bit about, about your process. Where does it begin? On the guitar, piano, music Well, actually, music you know, I, people what? all think that because they think I play piano for two reasons, because of Arthur, which is not true, and then also because of how keyboard-based the records are because of Amartian, but I don't actually play the piano. I, I write everything on guitar. I'm much more of a Joni Mitchell-ish kind of uh, writer than a, you know, than a, um, a pianoist writer. But, yeah, everything... I write everything on guitar. I mean, uh, with the records, we did interpret a lot of the stuff I write chordally and harmonically are difficult to play, yeah. um, and so I'll do them in pieces, and it's easier for Marty to assemble them on the piano. But and typically, everything starts w- w- on the guitar, you know, as a chordal progression. Because I'm a singer, I'll always be humming or coming up with a melody at the same time. That's kind of second nature or automatic for me. So uh, sometimes a lyric will pop out, but typically um, I'll be just. I usually write. I don't. I write very fast. If I pick up the guitar and I don't come up with something quickly, I just abandon it because I could sit there for two hours. I'm not like a brill building writer where you know you go and hammer it for eight hours. It doesn't work for me. So sure. if I'm at sound check, I'll come up with a little piece. If I'm at home, the key is getting some kind of a dictaphone or something and capturing it because I right. many times forget things that have some promise. But typically if I, um, like in my room here, I have my little laptop, and last night I was writing something and just pushed on GarageBand real quick and mm-hmm. just threw it down, because by the morning I would have forgotten it. Exactly, But yeah. usually it's I mean, musical progression, uh, usually always at least a verse and a chorus to get the basis of the song, come up with a bridge later. The melodies changes all the time. I mean, I might, the melody may change 
10 times or 50 times until I actually sing the song. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, then lyrically, like I said, there might be a piece or a concept, but when I wrote alone, I would then work on the lyric, but now that I'm with Rob, you know, it's just get a yellow pad out and hammer it out. But lyrics are, I think lyrics are much harder to write than music, and I think, uh, you know, that the real wordsmiths that I revere, like Randy and Leonard Cohen, sure. Waits, Paul Simon, Joni, I think, um, you know, and obviously Donna Walter, Henley, sure. they're, you know, that's the really hard thing to do. I think music's easier to write. And, yeah. of course, I have some real nice moments. I think uh, moments I'm happy with in my own writing, like sailing and certain songs that I think are, are nice, but there's right. also some, you know, inconsistent stuff when I worked alone. But once I got started working with Rob Muir, um, it really came together because he knew me so well and, and while I think the intrinsic feeling of the songs that start with me, yeah. um, he really brought, you know, yeah. brought the second half of the puzzle in and, and really make it complete. So, so when did you begin writing? When, when can you recollect that? Was it back in Austin when you were, um, you know, starting out there? When did you really begin writing and know that, knew that you had an affinity towards it? Well, I started playing the drums when I was 10. Uh, I sang and played the drums, but then not too long after that, I, a couple, a couple, three years after that, I wanted to get a guitar because I wanted to try to write and fill around. So I got a little acoustic out of the Sears catalog, and I began to write. I remember the first song I wrote. I think it's called Weird Street, mm-hmm. some kind of strange, you know, horror movie song. And then I wrote something called Littleton Bluebird. I, remember, I don't remember these songs, but I remember titles. But I began to write pretty early on. I was probably about thirteen, fourteen, and hmm. started to, you know, put little songs together. Um, they weren't great, they didn't survive, but I, I began the process, and it never really stopped. I mean, I always wrote from that point on, and I was never a very effective cover band musician, even though that's how we made our money, because I was never very focused on learning the, the right solo to the latest Boss Gag songs, because I couldn't give a shit. You know, I was just really more focused on writing. Yeah. I'm gonna, let's go back just even a little further. You know, as we mentioned at the start of the show, you, you were born and raised in the San Antonio, Texas area. And tell us a little bit about, well, you've already told us a little bit about growing up in Southern Texas and, and uh, what, how it affected you musically. But I'm curious about sort of how your musical development, I mean, were your parents influential to you musically? Were they musicians themselves yeah. or was it uh, like, did you get involved in high school band or some sort of music program in school? No, no, I never received any formal training at all. What happened was my father was a physician, but he had played bass viol in college, and actually I think did a couple of pickup gigs with Lawrence Welk, but he had played and loved it, but had abandoned it for, for his career in medicine, but he still had a bass viol, and he, you know, he, he, had, he built this kind of nice mono audio system at home in those days, was mono, and uh-huh. he used to put on some of his Glenn Miller records and some of his big band jazz and stuff that he liked, and he'd mm-hmm. sit and listen to it late at night, and I just age-wise was, you know, didn't, couldn't drive, and I'd sit around and sort of just, you know, listen with him, and he'd talk about it, and I got, kind of got the bug. That's where the bug originated, from my dad just listening to that stuff at home. And then <clears throat> the first album I bought, I w- wanted to get some contemporary jazz, so I bought uh, Dave Brubeck's Time Out in Outer Space. Yeah, okay. And, you know, got real in- infected with Joe Morello and just Joe's style uh-huh. and little drum solos and stuff. And so I asked for a set of drums, and okay. they gave me a little set of drums, I think, when I was, like I said, sixth grade. Mm-hmm. So my dad really got me, I think, started the bug with hmm. me, really, mm-hmm. as incidentally as it was, he got the bug with me. And I just, I guess my life sort of lacked, um, you know, I didn't have a direction. I wasn't into sports, and I didn't really have any focus at that point. It just took over, and it was a singular passion from that point forward. And then as far as other artists, I mean, I listened as I transitioned out of the jazz thing. Um, I started listening to Buddy Holly and to some of my big brother sister's records, you know, Richie Valens, Everly Brothers, Ray Charles, that kind of stuff, and just started to, you know, assimilate all that music. And then, of course, uh, 
uh, you know, the, the surf music, of course, the Beach Boys and, mm-hmm. and, and Brian. And then, you know, the, English, the whole English invasion, with McCartney and Lynn and all that. But, I mean, big influence, Buddy Holly, Everly Brothers early on, and then uh, and then certainly Brian as a writer, Carl as a, my two big influences vocally are Carl and, and Karen Carpenter. Okay. But um, Carl and Brian, and then next to, you know, certainly Lynn and McCartney and all the English invasion. Yeah. Um, and then, uh, you know, as time went on, as artists, I, I got exposed to other artists, as I said, you know, my the single biggest influence overall is Joni and Joni Mitchell. So, sure. Um, you know, you just start to listen to the artists that catch your ear, and, and that's the music that kind of sort of, you know, creates who you are. I mean, you, right. you, you interpret it, and it comes out in your own style, but uh, those are, you know, all major influences. But yeah, early on, it was, uh, it was uh, you know, Buddy Holly and all that stuff. And as I said, there were a lot of Latin. The big real forces in, in San Antonio music at the time were all Latin, big, big Latin bands. These are yeah. big, big horn bands with yeah. whole horn section, lots of percussion, um, you know, all those original Latin beats and stuff, and that's where we would go out and, you know, where the big kids played, and you know, like you see, you see exactly. Sonny in these bands play, and they were big stars, you know. Yeah, right, right. And, and when did you pick up the guitar for the first time? I guess I think it was about 13 or so. I just, I found one of the Sears catalog, it was like 17 bucks, and I'm left-handed, but the guitar was right-handed. Uh-huh. And uh, I was an army <laughs> brat of five, and we didn't have any money, and so I bought this guitar, and it looked like a little country guitar, and I sanded off the finish, and I it had terrible action, but I started to play it, and mess around and then <clears throat> I found a, a K electric in the hawk show for 70 bucks and I bought that and kind of transitioned in the band from um, drums to the guitar and started being the rhythm guitar player singer because uh-huh. I was already the singer I was singing from the drums yeah. so I was a singer so I transitioned to the front <laughs> and um, that's where all the girls were and, um, <laughs> yeah, the and then it gave me a harmonic ele- you know a harmonic element to, to write with and so that's that's what I was really looking for. And so, yeah. But I never really took any lessons on anything. And I wished I had taken a piano more, but I didn't. But uh, I just, you know, got reasonable <laughs> proficient on the guitar. And then as I transitioned into into cover bands, I was just forced into the position of having to play lead and kind of learned how, you know. Right. <laughs> Phil, I think it was even Phil Collins that said something that the drummer who sings still doesn't get any glory. <laughs> <laughs> you have to come to the Yeah, front. well, you know, you... Uh, being, being the singer is the key. That's if I have any yeah. advice for young musicians, is be the one that sings the song. But, uh, <laughs> right. but yeah, you know, Phil, obviously, you know, he still plays great, but I mean, obviously, you got to come out front, you know? Yeah. Moving ahead just slightly, then, you, prior to signing with Warner Brothers, you know, back in 78, you were in an Austin, Texas based band called Flash. Is that right? Right. And uh, this was a group I formed there and uh, some, you know, well known Santana musicians, and we played. Original music. I was writing at that time. Had a whole host of songs that nobody's heard. You know, now they didn't survive either. But yeah. uh, the music was interesting. It was kind of you know pop influence, but also I was very into Frank Zappa. Oh, okay. Um, a lot of Frank's you know, rhythm, rhythmical and, and approaches to things, and some of the music was a little bit avant garde. But mm-hmm. um, keyboards, bass, drum, guitar, and and um, we you know got quite a following around San Antonio, and we befriended a local promoter named Joe Miller who had Joe Miller Productions. Or jam production thing was called, mm-hmm. and I used to do a lot of. Uh, I was very interested in the music business. I I, mm-hmm. I was always the business guy in the band who had the van with the equipment, and you know, I always had the best pot. You know, the whole thing. I was I was the guy who goes to guy, <laughs> and uh, so I was the business guy. So I I loved working in the background of, of the concert business, and I helped Joe. We used to rehearse in his garage. He kind of became like a father, big brother to me. But yeah. rehearse in his garage, and then he used to let me work on a concert dates with him. You know, just doing any kind of pickup kind of go for a job, cool. and I was about 17 as a favor, and also because Joe kind of believed in my t- 
talent and wanted to kind of expose me, we used to have three bands on the bill in those days. So you'd have a local band play about 30 minutes, and you'd have the, the main acts play. And this was a time when a lot of English bands were coming over, so I got the chance to play with some great groups. Like we opened uh, for seven shows for Zeppelin and the Jethro Tull Tour when Zeppelin first came over for their first tour. Yeah. Holy cow. We wow. Opened, we opened for Jefferson Airplane. Um, That's cool. Seven, seven, <laughs> we got to play with a lot of big acts and, and have a little bit of a sense of what that was like. Yeah. And so... Um, it was fun, and it, it gave me, and also I got to work as a crew, gopher member for, you know, Blind Faith and, and Buffalo Springfield and all these bands, and just kind of get to be around the big leagues a little bit. And it was a good education for me, apart from the musical part, just, um, you know, meeting Eric Clapton and people and getting to talk to them a little bit, you know, just, like I said, it, it really, and you know, it, it's, uh, it's inspiring and kind of really, you know, fuels your fire, you know. Right, right. Just slightly moving ahead from there, your, you know, your first album was such a, a major success and included, you know, some of your most popular and radio-friendly songs, like we've talked about, like "Sailing" and "Ride Like the Wind" and "Never Be the Same" and, and even "Say You'll Be Mine." But tell us about the process of creating these songs and how you and the songs were discovered by Warner Brothers. And I, and I also wanted to ask: Were these songs being developed during the Flash days, or, or do their histories go back even further or, or ahead in, in the future? Yeah, no, way, way after Flash. These okay. the oldest songs. Okay. On the first album was Poor Shirley, and it was four years old. So okay. the songs were not that old. They were okay. most of them about two years old. I see. Um, you know, we just we were playing, after we transitioned up to Austin later on, and I got, Rob had played in a very successful band. Rob was a drummer in a band called The Zilches, and uh, we ended up kind of hooking up and going up to Austin and with Andy Solomon, who was playing with Laughing Kind, and we went up to Austin, and, but we formed a cover band because... Playing the original music wasn't practical. I mean, there were people doing it like Stevie Ray, but they weren't making any money. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we formed a cover band, and we just played, and that eventually became, you know, Christopher. We had different names, but eventually segued into Christopher Cross because we released a single, but we'll get to that. But I was writing and doing stuff, but we just kept it under our hat. We played as a cover band. We played fraternity parties and clubs, and we did quite well. We had a band house, and we, you know, were making 1500 bucks a night and doing well as, as a cover band. And I just kept my own material sort of under my hat. We'd record um, at night. I had the right range with the studio. I put some money into a studio there in Austin, Pecan Studios and stuff. And so we just hammered the hits out in Austin while we kept the material to ourselves. Um, I began to send tapes to Warner Brothers in about 75. We released a little single in Texas on a little local label called Starburst, and that was when I came up with the name Christopher Cross because we had to release it as something. And it was a single called Talking About Her, Uh and it was a pretty rock single. I mean, I actually think Cat Scratch Fever stole, he, Ted stole the riff from me because it's very much like Cat Scratch Fever. <laughs> Interesting. But um, it's, uh, it's kind of a rock song, real rock song, and it features Eric Johnson on slide. This is a million years before, you know, Eric sure. was on my album. Um, and we put it out, and, and that was Christopher Cross. We started calling ourselves Christopher Cross, but I started sending some demos to Warners in 75. They told me, they wrote back and said, you know, this is interesting, send us more, which is the standard string along. But uh, they, what they really liked was my voice. They thought the voice was radio-friendly. The songs, I don't know what, apparently they, didn't, they weren't that convinced about the songs. But what really got me going was, uh, strangely, was um, I had, I looked, my initial exposure to Warner Brothers was, I looked in Billboard at uh, the list of people at Warner Brothers. Well, I loved Warner Brothers. They had, you know, Joni and they had Hendrix and all these people. I just felt the label had a vibe. I Randy Newman. I liked and yeah. Orson. They liked the label. Yeah. But I looked at Mo Austin's name. He was the big wig chairman of the board or whatever, and I figured, well, you can't get to him. And I didn't know how the business worked. I didn't know about A&R. I didn't know any of that stuff. And I looked under his name. was a guy named Roger Burson, hmm. who uh, was his assistant. So I thought, well, I'll, I'll send it to him. Well, actually, Roger Burson was an attorney who actually was 
Mo's personal assistant did a lot of tutoring for his kids and wasn't involved at all in the musical chain at the company at all. He was more like a legal guy. Mm-hmm. And so I sent him my tape, and he had never gotten a tape from anybody. <laughs> you sent the lawyer the piece of music, huh? Yeah, I sent him a cassette, and, and he, he got the tape. And that day, strangely, he was going to lunch with Lenny Warnocker, who was head of A&R. And they got into the car, and this is the story that's related to me. They got in the car, and Roger Burson said, hey, I got a tape, why don't you listen to it? And Lenny was like, oh, man, give me a break. That's all I do all day long is listen to tapes. You know, I don't want to listen. And he said, no, this guy's good. And he put it in, and I think it was a light is on or something, and Lenny said, oh, that's pretty good. And that's how I got my foot in the door at A&R, because Lenny told me later that at wow. that time they weren't even interviewing material. They were just sending it back oh, on wow. open. Wow. And it was the fact that <laughs> I happened to send it by fluke to Burson that got to Lenny, and then Lenny started to communicate with me. And But like I said, when I, when I finally got signed after a couple of years, they had heard Sailing and all those songs, but they initially signed me and said, you know, we like your voice but we think we'd like you to record other people's material. Um, so we're going to get you material to record, but we want to sign you as an artist because we think you have a real radio-friendly voice. Uh-huh. Well, I was assigned a Martian as a producer, and a Martian, you know, I was disappointed, of course, but I was just glad to have a deal. But a Martian, you know, really loved the songs and felt they had merit, and he really kind of convinced them to let us go in and do the songs, so then we ended up doing that. But initially it was the voice, not the songs, that got me signed. Well, this is a good uh, stopping point. Let's take a quick break and hear a sample of one of the hits from your debut album, Ride Like the Wind. But instead of playing the original, why don't we play um, the arrangement that's on your latest CD, the Cafe Carlisle Sessions. Here's Ride Like the Wind from our guest, Christopher Cross. Classic song, Ride Like the Wind, from today's guest, Christopher Cross. 
you know, typically a first album for any artist on a major label, you know, sometimes is steered by the label itself. And uh, and just the story that you're telling me right now as to being assigned Michael Omardian uh, and knowing his his character and how, you know, how he knows what he wants. Um, how much control did Omardian take away from the, the label? I mean, typically the label tells you what tone, you know what I mean, what songs, what producer, what everything. What what kind of the business pressure did you feel at all, or or if uh, if any at all? Well, I mean, you know, you're just living in a dream. You got a deal. You're you know coming out to L.A. to record at mm-hmm. Amigo Studios, and Randy Newman's next door, and Ricky Lee Jones is down the hall. It's you know surreal. But Warner's is a company where it was very lost, and it's one of the great great record me and I'm again. I mean, it's a whole different. It's a it's a it's a a life a musical life that's gone now. You don't you know you don't see Mo as someone who I revere and just immense immense respect for. He's he, there isn't anybody like him. He's a real music man. He loved music. That's why he was in it. That's why he yeah. did it. That's why he got out of it, because, you know, it changed. But they let their guys do the One thing, they had a, a serious staff producer. They had Ted Templeman. They had Gary Katz. They had, you know, Lenny Warner, Chris yeah. Huddleman. They had, you know, a lot of heavies there. And Martin was new. He he only produced one other record before mine. Hmm. Um, so, no, Michael was given complete control. He got That's the cool. budget, and he was in complete control. I mean... The, the demos that I brought in were, were pretty much like the record is. The arrangements and stuff aren't that different. What Amartian brought to the project was was his brilliant playing and also the string arrangements and stuff like on Sailing sure. and I Like the Wind. But the intrinsic nature of the songs, if you heard our demos, aren't that really that different. He played, of course, we had a synthesizer solo on Sailing. He played the beautiful piano solo, but yeah. he, he did a lot. But, I mean, it was really more of his playing and, and just, you know, they brought to the record. But the arrangements were kind of the same. I think that uh, Amartian will tell you, uh, he was probably too gracious to tell you, but um, I was not, I didn't know who he was, really. I mean, I knew from the Steely Records, I think I'd heard his name, but I was not happy about him being assigned to me. I was disappointed. <laughs> I wanted Ted Templeman or one of the names that I thought was right, you know, right. Gary Katz, you know. Right, right. And um, I thought I was being shuffled off to this kind of new nobody, and I was very rude to Amartian when I met with him, <laughs> really? with Michael Austin, who was most son who signed me. I was very rude to Amartian. I was very indifferent. Treated him with a lot of very dis- much of disrespect. He'll tell you, but he's too nice to tell you. <laughs> but um, I was just like, you know, who the, who the fuck are you? You know, I don't know. <laughs> and Michael Austin said, well, you know, he, Michael, and he could sense that it wasn't going well. He said, you know, Christopher, Michael played piano on all the Steely Dan stuff, and I, because he knew I was a freak Steely Dan. He said, right. I said, really? And he goes, um, and you know, Marty's so shy and humble. He said, yeah, you know, I played on some stuff. And I said, like what? And he goes, well, you know, I don't know, name something. I said, like, you know. Playing Doctor Wu, and he goes, "Yeah, I played on that." <laughs> and you know, Ricky don't lose that number. And so he, you know, he started getting my interest. Right. And I tell you, in fact, I've got to call Larry Carlton and tell him. I just saw Larry, and I forgot to tell him that he. I don't think he knows this, but the reason Omarion got to produce the record is that we were just hinged on the thing falling apart and me wanting a different producer, which would have been horrible because Michael is, frankly, in my humble opinion, you know, dwarfs all those people musically, yeah. uh-huh. as I found out. <laughs> but I said to Omarion can you get Larry Carlton to play on my record? And he said, because uh, Larry wasn't really doing sessions anymore. He's kind of like the Toto guys. He'd kind of gotten out of it. And he said, uh, well, yeah. I said, you can? And he goes, yeah. And I said, all right, well, if you can get Larry Carlton to play on my record, you can produce my record. <laughs> and that was what made the, that's what got him the job. In other words, I was about to just say, to tell Michael Austin, I don't want this guy to produce my record. Oh I want, God. you know. And when he said he could get Larry Carlton, I said, okay. And he did. <laughs> wow. But, I don't think Larry knows that. I think I should tell Larry that the only reason Marty produced the record was because of him, and I think Larry would probably say, That's "Okay, too we'll funny. give me some of your royalties." But, yeah, it was because he could pull off the coup of getting um, Larry Carlton. 
he had to earn this job. Omar didn't have to earn this job. <laughs> well, <Rick. laughs> interestingly, you know, Larry was the Indian and all the Steely stuff, and they were very good friends. Yeah. And, you know, and Larry wasn't really doing sessions anymore, but, right. it, you know, Omardian called him, and Larry did it. But um, sure. And yeah. was the same with Mike McDonald. I mean, Michael Omardian invited Michael down to hear what he was working on, because it was one of his, you know, newest production. It was new to producing, and Michael came by and, you know, liked what he heard and offered to sing and all that. And so many of the connections we had, yeah. like Graydon and... Larry and, sure. and people were because of, of Michael's mm-hmm. associations with Steely Dan. Absolutely. Interesting. Hey, the piano solo, the melody and the arrangement of For Sailing, who wrote that? Well, yeah, the, the song, I wrote the song, so the right. arrangement of the song's mine. Um, the, the solo was originally a synth solo that Rob played, mm-hmm. and it was quite different than what Amartian played. And, and um, so Michael, you know, one night he was in the studio alone, and he recorded the piano solo, and it's obviously brilliant. So that's his completely. He he, you know, replaced the synth solo and put piano on it. Wow! And that's another Steely Dan story. When I came in and I was it was late at night and I came in and Marty had the lights down. He said, "I want to play you something." He had replaced the synth solo and <clears throat> I was just so focused on Steely Dan and their perfection for recording and I wanted everything to be like them. And I said to Michael um, and the engineer Chet Heim said, "This is really great." And I said, uh, "Yeah, it's really nice, man." But I think the note there's a note in the second bar that's a little late. And he said, what? And I, you know, because he's such an amazing musician. I mean, technically, <laughs> way beyond me. And, but, and I said, yeah, it's a little late. I said, I don't, you know, it seems like it could be better. And he just went, I was emoting, man. I was just, I mean, you know, I, you know he was like flabbergasted because it wasn't about everything being perfect. It's about yeah. the beautiful emotion of that soul. But I was so, you know, tunnel visioned about Steely. And I kept this, I would always say to him, well, Steely Dan, Steely Dan. And I finally said, well, I don't think Steely Dan would let that go. And he just said, <laughs> I think he might have actually said, fuck. He never used that language, but he might have said, you know, uh, he probably didn't, but he, I swear he said, fuck Steely. And he said, or screw Steely. Or something. He just ran out, he walked out of the studio and got in his Ferrari and left. And, um, and yeah, everything turned out fine, but, but later, after I listened to it again, of course, it was absolutely brilliant. But later when I talked to Michael about it in a calm moment, he said, listen, you know, there are a lot of mistakes on Steely Dan records. And he said, you just don't hear them. And he said, you, you think that they're, you know, it's all, he said, it's not that important that it be so perfect that you, you know, you're missing the point. And, and he was right. And later on, when I got to, a few times I did get to talk to Donald Walter, I mean, they're, like, you know, they're, they're, like, I heard they can't even listen to Katie Live. They don't like the way it sounds, you know what I mean? Yeah, but, yeah. But you don't hear that stuff because they're, just like we didn't hear the mistakes in the Beatles record until mm-hmm. years later. Sure, yeah. Um, but Omardian's point was, you're missing the point. You know, you're, you're fly-fucking this music when it should be emotional. And I think it was a real <laughs> lesson for me from him. But yes, yeah. I got distracted. The solo was him. Um, another thing that, you know, this is a first for your uh, interview, um, the, the, the start to sailing, he did the string arrangement, of course, too, which is absolutely gorgeous. But yeah. the start to the song, the song was supposed to start just with the riff. Okay. Um, that's how it started. Right. Uh, my first wife's brother-in-law, Bill, was in the studio just hanging out, and we were locking up two 24 tracks at that time. And at, in those days, you uh-huh. know, machines sure. were simpty and they were synced. And it, right. when they start the first machine, there was a catch-up, and it took a little while for the second machine to, to slip in. Right. Well, Chet put the machines in play, and the first machine, which was the slave, started to play, and the strings, a section of the strings came on. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the track, the tape caught up, and it started, the track started to play. And Bill, uh, my ex-wife's brother, said, that's really cool. And we said, <laughs> yeah. like, the way it starts with, like, the orchestra. Sure, sure. Right, I, mean, right. I know what you're talking about, yeah. And, uh, and Omarion went, that is cool. Wow. 
and we basically stole Bill's idea. You know, it was cool. it was one of those fluke things. I mean, no one had thought of that, but Bill just sort of innocently observed that that was cool, and that's how that happened. Because Amartian did write it that way. It's actually a section from the song, and it's just in the front. You know. Yeah, and that sucks you right into the song, though. Oh, it does. I, every time I hear that, it's like I can't not listen. Yeah. To, to yeah. The, well, so the the song, obviously, the intrinsic. I mean, the, the structure of the song stuff is all there, but Amartian's contributions are huge. Like so the string arrangement and also yeah. this piano solo. Yeah. Yeah. Well, hey, you know, aside from having one of the more recognizable voices, you know, really in the in the history of pop music, you're you're a pretty mean guitarist, and and being that you were so ingrained in the music scene from the very start of the '80s, when there was such an influx of of great mm-hmm. studio musician talent on the LA scene, how often or were you ever called upon to lend your talents as a guitarist on other artist projects, and and did you do much of that at all? Yeah, I didn't. You know, it's one of those things. I mean, I really, obviously, I've mentioned my peers. You know, obviously, Eric and Billy and and Stevie and those people, but I wasn't really taken that seriously as a guitarist. It's something that irritates Eric greatly because when he was put on the cover of Guitar Player and you know, it said, who is Eric Johnson and why is he on our cover? It was because he was on my record. Um, and, you know, Eric would say this and then from time to time, you ought to do an article on Christopher because you know, he plays good and you should do something. And they just never did. And so I was never really asked to do stuff on anybody's records playing guitar at, at all. Uh, one time... Gary Katz called me and said, would you want to come play on a track for the guys? And I, of course, said, you know, absolutely, I would love to. Um, and, I, you know, I cannot remember, but I swear, I think it was Third World Man. Really? And um, really? Gary said, you don't want to come take a shot, because I knew these was a lot of players. And I forget what actually happened. Whatever happened, I think Gary, they got a track they liked. I mean, because they would, you know, as you saw with, with Jay, you know, they... Had twelve guitar players, and then Jay right, played the right, solo. Right. So I think what happened was they had different people coming in to do it, and and I think Larry Larry must have done it, and of course you know played unbelievably, and they kept it, and so then Gary didn't need me to do it, but I was very very nervous, but it would have been great to, to have a shot to do it. But wow. sure. um, yeah, I was never taken seriously as a player, and no one ever you know I mean there's so many great players out there, but you know on the first record I had Eric play and had Larry play, and then later the second record Luke. And Jay, and it was really yeah. Luke and Larry, really more than anybody, and of course Eric, who all those players are the one that encouraged me to play on my own records. Because really, with the first album, and I was going to have Eric play the solo on Ride Like the Wind. Yeah. And, um, you know, I think Eric said, you know, you should play it, you know. Mm-hmm. And then as time went on, Larry and, and Luke and all of them said the same thing. They said, you know, you don't need us, you can do it yourself, you know. And so wow. they sort of gave me the confidence to sort of play more on my records. But That's good. as time's gone on, I mean, Eric did plan other things, but. Um, it was through their encouragement, but yeah, I was never, I've never really been taken that seriously as a player. Yeah. On another page, I was listening uh, on to the, to the actual, the vinyl LP last night, spinning the disc with my daughters. And I said, girls, you got to hear this, you know? So we put it on and, and I was reading the liner notes and I noticed that, uh, Jeff Porcaro played on a couple of tracks there too. On another page, which is my second record, the entire record is, is Abe, uh, L'Oreal and Steve Gadd. Sure. Except for Think of Laura, that's Tommy Taylor. Okay. Right. Um, but yeah, but what Jeffrey did play on, Jeffrey played on Arthur. Arthur was actually, we cut in between the first two records, and that's Toto. Uh-huh. That was the entire group. That was, you know, Steve, Jeff. Gotcha. Right, right. Okay. All, it was David Hungate at the time before Michael right. played, but it was, it was Toto was the, was the rhythm section for that. Mm-hmm. And then, you know what? Absolutely, you're absolutely right. I'm sorry. You are right. Yeah. You're right. I uh, it was one Jeffrey track. played on All Right. That's it. Exactly. Right. Yeah. It was. You're absolutely right. I'm, I, I stand corrected. Steve played on everything else. Tommy played on Laura, and Jeffrey played on All Right. Mm-hmm. And I remember Toto was the band on that record because Steve played the solo. Because I remember Jeffrey Phil in one of the 
places in our world I thought was a little little kind of normal. Uh-huh. And I wanted to do something fancier. And he said, man, that's, he said, that's the shit right there. <laughs> what I did is it. Like, that's, don't it. Want to think, you know, that's, that's it, cool. man. That's it, man. <laughs> and uh, I remember, too, we were, we were doing all right. We'd run it down, I think. Actually, I think it was on Arthur we were running down. We'd run down the track two or three times, and they were having some technical problems. Mm-hmm. And it was Jeffrey that said, um, he was just, he was, a, he was a freak of nature, but uh, he just said, yeah. uh, like I said, it was a Martin playing piano, I was on acoustic, and, and the Toto guys, and Jeffrey actually stopped us after about three runs and said, we're on this. And you know, Martin was producing. And then Jeffrey just stood up and walked away with the drums and said, we're on this. If we play this one more time, it's going to be stale. <laughs> and he said, if they don't have their shit together, let's just take a break and go have lunch. So we went to Dr. Hogley Wogley's Barbecue, and we had... Um, <laughs> That's great. We had a uh, uh, barbecue... And uh, I remember that because I think we were riding in Hungate's convertible and Lucas pulled his pants down, I think, as I remember. But, um, <laughs> in the middle of the freeway. But uh, we ate barbecue and came back, and then they had the technical part fixed, and we, they picked up their instruments, and it was boom, done. We just nailed it. Wow. And Jeffrey's point was, you know, there's a certain energy when guys of that caliber learn a song, mm-hmm. and if you beat them up, you, ba- you badger them with it, they just they lose their enthusiasm for yeah, it because right. they are thoroughbreds, and they, you know, right. they lose... They get excited about something, love the song, but that only excitement only lasts so long. And yeah. so, you know, you got to catch that energy, and that's what Jeffrey could tell. It's like, you know, he knew those guys, and he said, we're on this, we're ready to nail it, we know it, but if you make us play it over and over again, it's going to get stale. Yeah. But yeah, Jeffrey played, uh, he did play an all right, you're correct. Well, we're getting, we're getting close to the end here, but I have just a couple more questions. And one, uh, one is, is, is kind of interesting. We've asked a few of our guests this, but if, if music hadn't been your career path, what, what else would you have enjoyed doing for a living? Boy, uh, certainly would love to be a porn actor, but... Uh, <laughs> uh, next next question here. Okay. <laughs> I, don't the, I don't have the talent. Um, you know, it's really hard to say. I did try, I tried to, the pre-med thing for a little while because my father's a doctor, yeah. my sister's doctors and all that, but I don't think I really had the discipline for that. Uh-huh. Um... I don't really can't imagine. You know, this has been a singular passion, as I said, since the time I was 10. I yeah. really can't imagine. I raced cars for a little while, and that was fun. But I was going to ask but, about that, yeah. But given the fact that I had access to that only because of my success, what I would have done in a regular career path, I really can't tell you. I have the feeling, sadly, it would probably be something, you know, very mundane and uninteresting. So I was very lucky that, you know, I was about to give up. And then when I got my deal, and so, you know, I think I have talent, and I think I worked very hard, but I think I was also very, very lucky because our business is just such a tough thing. It's like the MBA. It's very tough to make it. And so, you know, thank God uh, I, I did. But uh, I really don't know. I just yeah. can't yeah. imagine. You know, I just, I was so in love with music as I still am today that I just, uh, I hate to even think about that because I don't know what I do. I, I really can't imagine. Be, you know, sacking groceries or doing something. Yeah. Have you seen any of the Yacht Rock videos on, that are out there on YouTube and other, have you, have you heard of that? Oh, yeah, sure. Chris Rollis, who was one of my drummers, <laughs> dear friend of mine, he brought me the original one. I think the original one they did was about was the one about Michael and Kenny and Daryl. Right, John. right. Uh, that was, the, I guess, the pilot. Yeah. Chris showed it to me, and um, I loved it. I thought it was fantastic. And, and I, you know, I, I think I might have showed it to Mike, and, and I've laughed with the guys about it. I mean, I love, particularly with the guys that they've got playing logins by the fire. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, you know, it's very funny stuff, and, of course, it's so cryptic, again, the way they have my real name, Geppert, and then this kind of, you know, right. face kids comes up with his guitar and starts playing sailing. I mean, it's just sort of disjointed and absurd, but yeah. I think it's very, very funny, and... And, you know, I love the whole pitting of Michael and, and, and Kenny against Daryl and John. So, you know, it's great stuff. And I know they've done a lot of other ones. There's been 11 so far. 
I've seen I've seen them all, but uh, you know, yacht rock is now what the type of music that I made that whole era with Michael and Kenny and all right, that. Right. That whole genre of music is called in Japan in a lot of places. It's called yacht rock. <laughs> yacht rock. <laughs> That's so, yeah, funny. It's, it's um, it's very funny. Back, Michael uh, played on a tour with Daryl and John not too many years ago, and I was I was reminded of uh, of that very thing. You know, Michael and Daryl on the on the tour together, and yeah, and uh, you know, it's funny stuff. <laughs> no, I love all that. You know, I've got a very Six and of humor and all that stuff I find very funny. It's yeah. it's very hard for me to. I'm very self deprecating. It's very hard to. Well, the first time I saw those, I thought, wait a second, they're, they're making fun of Toto. They're making fun of. I mean, they're they're poking Steely Dan and, and Christopher Cross and Michael McDonald. Oh, these are all people I like. And I started. And <laughs> yeah, then I, but you I know, was kind of. You know, it's like you're all a, dealing with. You know, I mean, ask you know, you talk to the guys. Ask Luke. I mean, Luke's is cynical and crazy. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, God, yes. and uh, brilliant, but you know, he's, he's looks nuts and, and yeah. wonderfully nuts. But <laughs> right. He's, a dear friend and just you know amazing, amazingly talented and just fun he's <laughs> yeah. a fun guy i mean oh, yeah. i don't think lukey has got a sense of humor that's come on you can't you know uh, he he says some wacky stuff. oh he does he does <laughs> um there's nothing off off you know the record for luke i mean he's you know but uh <laughs> he's about as un pc as they come but i think <laughs> exactly. you know the same with donald those guys all those guys have got very cynical dry senses of humor so i don't think you know any of them really right. find much of that stuff bothersome <laughs> i mean they're just you know, yeah they're it's just but, but like you, where I was going with that was after I watched a few of them, I thought, these are hilarious. I mean, these are, you know, they were just off-the-wall humorous, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, one thing I've got to put up on my side, I've, I've got it somewhere, I've got to put it up as, uh, you know, like, I was I was having dinner in New York one night, um, strangely enough, I was having dinner with Jacqueline Smith, I think, who was from Angels, but uh, Frank Zappa was at the restaurant, I hadn't ever met Frank, but I didn't see him there, but he, uh, somebody sent a bottle of water on my table that was sort of half-consumed, and it was Frank. So, Went over and we visited for a little while, and, and he asked me to come play with him the next night, I guess, at New York. And I was leaving town to do press. This was in my kind of heyday. Uh-huh. And I was certainly upset that I couldn't because I'm a sort of massive fan. And, and uh-huh. so then at some point, a couple weeks later, I get this cassette in the mail, just says Zappa, and it was a cassette of Frank doing Ride Like the Wind. Really? With Al Miola. Yeah, and I've got to put up my <laughs> Holy I've got cow. Of it. And, it's, and it's Frank. And Frank says, you know, uh, Chris Cross couldn't make it, so our, our drum roadie Brian's going to come out and sing it. <laughs> and the drum party sings it, and they play us right like the wind, and it's and it's just fantastic. And and later, I think it might have been Frank or somebody, uh, or somebody saying, you know, how did you feel about that? Because you know, it, it's sort of tongue in cheek, and and it's right, right. It's the ultimate compliment to be paired. Oh yeah. With that. But, oh exactly. You know, it's, I was. It's an honor. I mean, it's one of my great treasures to have this tape of Frank doing my song. So you know, <laughs> it, all that stuff is oh, even though he kind of makes you know has his own fun with it. Um, right, it's great. You know, it's fantastic. <laughs> he plays Wawa, lead through the whole thing. But and you say uh, you say you know, my... it's it's great. You know, it's uh, it's all meant in good humor. And but yeah, the art rot stuff. Right, <laughs> and you say you might uh, you might put this up on your site at some point. What's that? The the this parody of uh, Ride Like the Wind by Zappa. Absolutely, you guys. We just think of it. Like I said, yeah, I've got it. I've got it on uh, on Pro Tools now because <laughs> I got it off the cassette years ago. And oh, that's great. Uh, Sheer Avelli, who's my webmaster, who's actually Mike McDonald's guitar player. He's a brilliant really? producer player. Just produced Mike McDonald's. Uh, you know, I have Amy Hall and her new record, which oh, is yeah. great, by the way. You should you should talk to Amy. But, yeah, we um, should. Yeah, oh, yeah. Absolutely. Her new record's called Miss, uh, Miracle River, and it's I don't know if you've heard it, but it's uh, Amy's Mike's wife, and she was up for Best New Artist the same year I was as Amy Holland. Uh huh. And Mike produced her record. She had a number one record off that record back in those days, and mm-hmm. then she went on to have kids and stuff. But she's back. She got a album called Miracle River, and it is it is it's brilliant. It's just wow. brilliant. It's fantastic. And and uh, Bernie produced it, but. Bernie's also on the side of Webmaster to Sean Colvin's site and Mike's site and stuff. But I, uh, yeah. Bernie's been helping me put stuff up. 
And I will put that up. Yeah, that would be a fun thing for people to hear. <laughs> yeah. I don't think anybody has it, you know, unless you happen to be at the show. Exactly. Well, our final question here is uh, we're still early in 2009, and I wondered uh, what other projects you, you were working on now or what, what you have coming up uh, for the remainder of the year. Well, I'm, like I said, I'm, I'm real passionate about trying to get the Christmas record more exposed and released this year, working on a new cover, mm-hmm. trying to, you know, get that out there. Um, Rob and I have written about 15 new songs. Untypical for us. It's been 10 years since Avalon, so we've had time, but... Usually we don't have enough songs. We've got about 15, 16 songs mm-hmm. um, written. I'm just trying to find time to record them. I'm, I've been on the road so much. You're going to put the record. It's a very different kind of record for us. Uh, I don't know how to describe it. It's just it's different again. It's it's, it's not typical. Um, really, really happy with the songs. I think they're they're well-crafted. So we're going to try to get that out uh, sometime in the summer, I'd hope. Um, other than that, um, I was talking to my dear friend Jeff Foskett, who is uh, Brian Wilson's MD and... Um, great, real talented cat, and he was talking about doing some kind of projects, and he approached me about doing this project, uh, you know, doing some kind of project with him called the California Songbook, um, okay. which would be really interesting to be Jeppy producing, and I'd be singing a collection of song, California songs from artists like the Carpenters, the Eagles, Red, oh, wow. the Association, yeah, favorites of mine, but they would be, you know, from the California Songbook, and, and, I, and I like that idea very much, um, it's, uh, there's some great... It's a big wealth of songs there, and again, artists like Karen Carpenter, who was you know a huge influence on me, yeah, um, to get to do you know one of her tunes. So that's a project Jeff and I are talking about doing. But uh, but I got my hands full. Believe me, even yeah. singing on that with Jeff producing, and then me doing my record, I, I got more than I can handle with between touring because we're busy. So, yeah. but the records, uh, real excited about the new record. The songs, Rob and I worked hard, and it just it's. I think it's really interesting stuff. I think people will be surprised. And sure, yeah. So, yeah, i got plenty to do. Well, good. You keep us posted, would you please? And uh, we'll keep in Absolutely. touch. And when that comes out, and uh, we'll uh, we'll help uh, do our part to promote that, too. Yeah, well, it's been a thrill to talk to you guys. Like I said, I, you've been very patient. I know our, our mutual friend, Scott Gross, has been so great about trying to hook us up, and I very much enjoyed it. You know, like these kind of views I love because, you know, you guys... Yeah. Really informed, and you've and you've done your homework, and it's mm-hmm. a big compliment to me. And well, so thanks really very enjoyed. much. Thank you very much. And we want to thank Scott Gross also. Thanks, Scott, and Scott, and, thanks, re- man. and Christopher. Thanks so much for joining us on Inside Music Cast, right. and uh, and hopefully we can we can keep in touch and, and chat with you in the future again. Absolutely. Like I said, as soon as we get some stuff in the new record, I'll send you something, and we'll talk about it. Great. Yeah. Very good. All right, All right guys. Take See care. Bye bye. Very special thanks to Christopher Cross for joining us on this episode of Inside Music Cast. For more information about Inside Music Cast, check out our website at InsideMusicCast.com. You can also find us on Facebook and MySpace. We'd love to hear from you, and we always take our listeners' input and suggestions into consideration. So drop us an email anytime at input at InsideMusicCast.com. For Eddie Cabello, I'm Rick Such. Thanks for listening to Inside Music Cast.